You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Michael Morell, who spent his career at CIA working on East Asia for 14 years, and he held a number of jobs in analysis and management. In 1999, he became the director of the Office of Asian Pacific and Latin American Analysis, and he also served as President George W. Bush Intelligence Briefer and as Executive Assistant to CIA Director George Tenet. In his over 30 years at the agency, he played a central role in the United States' fight against terrorism, its initiatives to halt the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and its efforts to respond to trends that are altering the international landscape, including the Arab Spring, the rise of China, and the cyber threat. As deputy director from May 2010 until August 2013, he oversaw the agency's analytic and collections operations, represented the agency at the White House and on Capitol Hill, and maintained the CIA's relationship with intelligence services and foreign leaders. He was one of the leaders in the search for Osama bin Laden and participated in the deliberations that led to the raid that killed him in May of 2011. He served as acting director longer than anyone in the history of CIA and did it twice, most recently for four months before the appointment of former CIA director John Brennan in March of 2013. He's also the author of The Great War of Our Time, the CIA's fight against terrorism from al-Qaeda to ISIS. So welcome to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here Vince, today. Vince, it is great to be with you. It really is. So whenever I have a, 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 a career practitioner and somebody who spent so much time at the agency, um, I want always want to ask the question about how you got to CIA. Was, was it always the plan? Was this something you were thinking about in college and kind of geared your studies toward this direction? It was never the plan. <laughs> um, so I went to college um, with the idea of majoring in political science. Um, and going to law school. I wanted to be a lawyer like like pretty much everybody else, right? Um, and, and, and part of the requirement for a political science degree was two classes in economics, microeconomics and macroeconomics. And I took those two classes my freshman year, and I fell in love 
with economics. I thought it explained not only the economy, but I thought it explained pretty much all of human behavior as well. And because I fell in love with it, I wanted to, um, after I graduated, um, I wanted to go to grad school, I wanted to get a PhD, and I wanted to teach economics. I had a professor um, who I think did some work for the agency. I was never able to figure it out um, because he died early in life. But uh, I had a professor who encouraged me, despite what I wanted to do, to encourage me to, to, to apply to the agency. So I did. And I was this middle-class kid from Ohio who had never been to Washington, D.C. So when the agency said, why don't you come down for an interview for two days, um, I said yes with the intention of not taking a job if offered. Mm -hmm. um, I I accepted the offer because I wanted to see the nation's capital on the taxpayer's dime, right? right? Um, so I came, I came to Washington and for two days had 10 interviews. Um, and after those two days, I was, um, I was blown away by the mission of the agency. Um, I was blown away by its capabilities, and I was blown away by the quality of the people I met. And they said to me, you know this grad school thing that you want to do? Well, if you come here, um, we'll pay for that. Right. Um, as soon as you come here, we'll start sending you to night school for your master's degree, and um, after a few years on the job, we'll send you back full-time, pay your tuition, um, pay your salary, um, and you can go for a year to work on your Ph.D., um, which they ultimately lived up to, by the way. Um, but when they said that, and, and given everything I had seen, um, I said no to grad school. I said yes to the agency, and, um, and I never looked back. Well, that's the interesting thing. When, you, when you're looking at some of these elite organizations like CIA, the interview process is as much them selling themselves to you because you wouldn't be in this position if you weren't considered somebody who was of that status as well. Sure. You know, there's various hurdles, right, in the hiring process. And the first hurdle is the biggest, right? Is, is this somebody we're interested in? Mm. Right. So by the time you get to the interview, it is somebody that you're interested in and you want to sell the place. So, you know, I, I probably interviewed um, in my time on, on the analytics side of the agency maybe 100, 150 people who wanted to work there. And, and I tried to sell every single one of them on wanting to work there. When you were director, you never went back and saw if your professor worked for CIA? No. <laughs> so, so, so by that time, he had died. He had yeah. cancer, um, and, and, and he died probably 10 years into my career at the agency. So I was never able to go back to him and say, hey, you know, love to know what Could you have look done. Could have looked at the files yeah. or yeah, something. look at the files. So I, today, things are somewhat different as far as getting in the agency. You go to CIA.gov, and you do the online stuff. So what kind of advice would you give to those who are thinking about a career at CIA? You know, even... Think of it from the at-college level and even the early career level. What, what kind of advice would you give to them thinking of that direction? So I would you know, suggest several things. One is, is, is it's a very, very large organization, right? It's a, I can't tell you how large it is because it's classified, but it's a big organization with a worldwide presence. And because of that, it hires everything. Mm -hmm. So it hires doctors and lawyers and finance people and logisticians, um, and, and, and it hires lots and lots of different people. So don't think you have to be an international relations person um, or, or an international government person um, you know, to be of interest to the organization. It hires everything. So that's kind of the first point. There are, there are three, three groups of people at the agency who do the mission of the place. They're the engineers – Right, who makes spy gear? Mm -hmm. So, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, and engineers who make spy gear 
Um, cooler stuff than you've seen in James Bond. Cooler <laughs> stuff than you have here in this Bond Museum. Um, you'll have it here someday. We'll have it here one day. You'll have one it here day. one day, right? We're on the list. Um, so, 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 big, big interest in engineers, right? For that reason, and then you've got this group of people um, who, who who do analysis for a living, right? Who take all the information available to the U.S. government and try to make sense of it for the president. That's the side of the agency I grew up on, and those tend to be um, international relations. Regional studies, political science, um, philosophy, economics, um, things that teach about the world or things that teach you how to think, right? Um, so, so if you're interested in that, you should focus on one of those areas. And then you've got this thing called operations officers, case officers, right, whose job it is to recruit other human beings to spy for the United States of America. Um, and they come from all different walks of life, right? They come from all different experiences in, in academia. Um, they're looking for, the agency's looking for a personality type mm -hmm. there rather than a, 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 a specific major or, or interest area. I would say that there's, that there's a couple of things that are really, really helpful. One is um, the more time overseas, the better, across the board, mm -hmm. um, because it shows an interest in the world, it shows your ability to work in the world, um, a deep interest in serving your country um, um, is is important, um, and then and then obviously um, somebody who who the agency can trust with a security clearance um, and with handling secrets. Right? Ob yeah. it, it's obviously extremely important. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk a lot about that later on. And the idea of that's always been a concern, but you know, I, I think more than ever. Uh, there's maybe been a kind of come to Jesus moment on reassessing how we understand who we can trust and who we can't sure, trust. Absolutely. Let me let me ask you a, a little bit of a broad question, and, and, and it is admittedly an unfair broad question because it's too big. But you can answer it at the macro level or kind of even bring it down to bits and pieces. You're a CIA through what I would argue are the three major transition periods for the agency: the end of the Cold War, 9/11. And then the couple of years after 9-11 reorganization to create the capital I, capital C intelligence community. So in the broad spectrum, what has dramatically changed? What has stayed the same? Like what, if you could point to like the one thing in your, your career that you saw shift from the earliest mission of CIA to what it is today, what could you possibly point to? So it's a great question. And um, there's a lot of things there, right? Um, you could answer the question with, you could answer the question by saying, you know, the CIA after 9-11 went back to its OSS roots in terms of um, paramilitary activities in, the ter in, in terms of um, the degree um, of, of the, the, the share of resources, right, that both people and dollars that went to covert action. Um, you could talk about that. Um, you could talk about you could talk about uh, a lot of things. I think what I would point to is the, the 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 growing importance of intelligence in the president being able to deal with national security issues, mm -hmm. um, and 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 it started with with it started with Bill Clinton um, and. Um, Al Qaeda, right? I mean, so that's when Al Qaeda first came to our to our consciousness, right? With the East Africa bombings and the coal bombing, um, but it also continued into the Bush administration and then into the Obama administration, and I'm absolutely sure it continues today. And that is that that 
the, 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 a huge chunk, a huge chunk of the national security threats and challenges that we faced are first and foremost intelligence issues. And what I mean by that is you can't, you can't understand those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't make policy on those issues and you can't carry out that policy without first rate intelligence. So, so I can go to any university here in DC, Georgetown, George Washington, and, and, and grab, grab somebody, grab a professor who can give you real insight into Chinese politics. Mm -hmm. But I can't go to any university here in Washington or anywhere else um, to get you real insight on the North Korean nuclear program or the Iranian ballistic missile program or Chinese military modernization um, or any host of – or or al-Qaeda in – in the Arabian Peninsula's plans, intentions, and capabilities for attacking the United States, right? Those require intelligence, and they require first-rate intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I just saw the growing importance of that um, during pretty much from the time I was working for George Tenet in 1998 and 1999 through the day I left. So right. that, that was the big change. I mean, you can just look at the front pages of the major newspapers in the last 20 years and see that there's at least one intelligence-related story on the front page, basically every single day, for the last 20 years, and you know not just at the highest levels, but we're talking about these are papers that go out to you know millions and millions of Americans, and, and trying to understand that at that level, it seems dramatic right. in the change since before that. Uh, yeah, know. the way Mike Hayden puts it, um, uh, my friend, my mentor, uh, my former boss, the w- the way he puts it is, is during the Cold War, the enemy was very easy to find but hard to kill. And he was talking about um, Soviet tank divisions mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe, right? You can see them, but you can't do anything about them. In this new world we live in, the enemy is very easy to kill, capture or kill, um, but very difficult to find, right? So the terrorists in an in a internet cafe in Sana'a, Yemen, right? If you can find the person, you can get them. Um, and intelligence is all about the finding, right. and that's why it's become so much more important. I, we've had a lot of operations people on SpyCast and, and a good amount of analysts, but I always enjoy talking to former senior leadership because we get to talk about dissemination of intelligence, kind of telling truth to power, yeah. which we don't always get the opportunity to. And I didn't know this. I, I should have because it seems pretty obvious, but you're the only person alive or dead who was with both President Bush on 9-11 and with President Obama on May 1st. 2011 when Osama bin Laden was taken down. So you're especially good for this conversation. You, you've, you've kind of been in the mi- middle of everything. Um, so let me talk about President Bush as a briefie. Yeah. Uh, there's, we can, the caricatures of President Bush yeah. notwithstanding, we can push him to the side. Um, but I want to ask you a little bit about how he was as a briefie. Basically, was he open to listening to things that might have challenged his worldview? Because Every administration comes in with the way – and even Mike Hayden talks about the oh shit moments when a new president's brief for the first time on the real – the world. How was he on asking the right questions and trying to – in changing the way he perceived yeah. the world? So um, I, I briefed him um, every day. I was his intelligence briefer um, from January 4th, 2001 to January 4th, 2002. Um, he was – he was terrific to – brief. He was terrific to work for. He was deeply interested in what we had to say. Um, He would take the conversation one of two directions, often both. Um, The first was to understand the intelligence that we were putting in front of him. 
And so he would he would ask me questions about that. He would try to understand it better, understand it more deeply. He would he would occasionally um, um, take me what I call take me deep, which was ask me question after question mm-hmm. after question after question, and I got through like six or seven, and I didn't know the answer anymore. So I'll say we'll get back to you tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? Um, so so that was one direction he took it was to try to understand the intelligence better, and then the other direction was what does this mean from a policy perspective? Right. So in the room for that conversation were, were George Tenet and the vice president and Condi Rice and, and, um, and the White House chief of staff. Right. And they would have a conversation about the policy implications of what they were looking at. Um, I, so I found him I found him deeply interested in the subject matter. Um, I found him asking a lot of questions. I found him having having a very good gut feel about about the policy implications um, and and what the U.S. should do about it. Um, I found him very quick to make decisions, willingness to make decisions. Um, he was he is not the caricature mm-hmm. that people think. He is smart, um, and, and he gets to the point quickly. Um, and 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 I did not find it difficult to tell him something that he didn't want to hear. I did not find it difficult to um, correct him. I didn't put it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I did it softly, but I, I did not find it difficult to do that. One day, just to show – just to drive this point home, one day I showed him a piece of intelligence. It wasn't an analytic piece. It was a piece of human. And it was about how a particular intelligence service in a particular country was telling their leader only what the leader wanted to hear. And it was a particularly important country. Mm. And I thought he needed to know this. So I showed this to him and he read it and he said, Michael – we sure don't have this problem here, do we? <laughs> so, was there was there a particular topic that he dove deep on that stood out? I mean, that surprised you? You know, like obviously he came to office with the Middle East as a primary. I mean, he really focused on the Middle East, North Korea, China, not so much Russia. But did he find particular interest in, in an area of the world that you just like? Oh, it's interesting that he cared about this more than he might have other places. So- so he came to office without without um, a deep ex- expertise in in international affairs, right? Um, I think he'd been to China and 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 Israel, and I think I think that might have been it in terms of his international travels. Um, so he was interested in understanding pretty much everything that I put in front of him because he was he was in learning mode mm-hmm. during the transition and then during those first few months in two thousand one. Um, he was very interested in the Middle East because the second intifada was underway. Um, President Clinton's um, goal of um, ending his, his, his second term with a peace deal didn't happen. Palestinian expectations um, as a result of that, um, you know, that were off the chart, were not met. They reacted. They reacted in the way you would think, and there was a second intifada going on. So he was very interested in that. Um, he was very interested in the kind of traditional threats against the United States, terrorism and Iran and, and Iraq. And, but I think the one thing that surprised me a little bit was um, – and, and I guess it's not surprising when you think about it – was, was he, he had a deep interest in Latin America. Mm-hmm. He had a deep interest in what was going on in Colombia, for example, um, deep interest in, in Mexico um, and not traditional national security issues but just a real interest. Let me ask you particularly about – um, how difficult it may have been of a learning curve for President Bush because of the truncated president-elect time period. You know, 
for those kids out there, the 2000 election wasn't decided right. on, on November or whatever. It went several you know, more weeks afterwards. And so you didn't have a lot of time to, to get him up to speed. Uh, was there a sense of urgency from the agency to kind of make sure that he hit the ground running when he was inaugurated in January? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't something that I was conscious about. Mm. I don't know if you know George Tennant would have a different answer to that. But we did have we did have a good six weeks with him. Um, I thought that was plenty of time. Mm. Um, I didn't think we lost a lot because of okay. that. You've done multiple interviews about 9-11. I'm going to try not to rehash a lot of what you said already. There's actually some very fascinating ones, both in documentaries and in print. I want to ask you a little more wonky question about communication between headquarters and where you were with the president because you were bouncing all over the place, whether it's on Air Force One or you were in undisclosed locations. What was communication like between how, – how effectively was it done? What were the kind of questions being sent back and forth? The communication in a broader yeah. sense – at that level. Yeah, I haven't talked about this. I talk about it in my, in my book a little bit, but yeah. I haven't talked about it um, in an interview. It was awful. And it wasn't only awful because we were on the move in Air Force One, um, but the whole agency was on the move because um, Director Tennant believed that the agency might be a target on 9-11 of an aircraft as a weapon, and so he evacuated the headquarters, and, and most people went home, but the people working working counterterrorism moved to another building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were on the move as well. Uh, the way this played out for me personally is um, the president asked me to call George Tennant and to tell, to tell him that, that as soon as George learned anything about the attack, that he was to call the president and because the president wanted to be the first to know. And so I made that call, but I made it just as, and I made it to Director Tennant's office, and I made it from Air Force One, um, and, 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 and I made it to Director Tennant's office, um, but they were just on the verge of evacuating, so I didn't talk to the director, or I didn't talk to one of his personal staff. I talked to somebody from the counterterrorism center who happened to be standing there. And I gave him this message. And I just knew that this message would never get right. to the director. Right. Um, so later that day, we are, in, we are at Offutt Air Force Base in the underground bunker. And um, Tenet is briefing the president over a secure video teleconference. And he's telling the president that we took the names from the flight manifest ran them against the terrorist databases we had, and we had three hits. So three of the people on those four planes were known al-Qaeda guys. So based on that, Tenet said, I believe al-Qaeda did this, right? Um, The president turned around and looked at me. Like, I thought I was supposed to be the first to know. Mm. I thought he was supposed to call me. What happened here was the look on his face. So I walked out of that that civets room, and I called the director's... um, executive assistant and you know i was pretty upset um and the assistant said to me well that information you know was embargoed from leaving this building until the until until the director was able to brief it and i said embargoed from the president of the united states um and at that point they sent me everything um and included in the everything was they sent me they sent me some very interesting intelligence that was provided to us that day by a foreign intelligence service that suggested that this was only the first wave, that mm. there was a second wave attack coming. 
So I briefed that to President Bush on the way back to Andrews. You can imagine a guy who, whose job it is, right, fundamental job it is to protect the American people, and there was just the worst attack ever on the United States of America um, in terms of lives lost. Um, and he, here was his briefer telling him that this might just be a first wave. Right. How was the communication between the president's office and the vice president's office and between you and someone like Kristen Wood? So a little inside baseball. I've already interviewed her, although it will not post until after this one does. Yeah. So people will hear her talk a little bit about this later on. But was there a coordination of efforts at, or is everything separate? Everybody was on their own, yeah. right? And, and, and most of, most, of, um, most of what I was telling the president was based on my own experiences, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he was asking questions of me. And for the most part, I knew the answers, right? So early on, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine took credit. Right. So he said, what do you know about this group? And I said, here's what I know. There's no way they could have done mm -hmm. this. They don't have the capability. Right. So I was able to answer most of the questions based on my own knowledge and experience. The only question I couldn't answer was who did this. Right. right? Um, and I answered it, but not with the specificity that I that that it turns out the CIA CIA headquarters had. Mm -hmm. So no coordination among the briefers. And that was that was unusual. Right. Because usually the briefers coordinated among themselves. Because famously, I mean, this is all over the place and in print that. He asked you who did this, and you, you said it's most likely it's Al-Qaeda. Right, right. Um, let me ask you an interesting question I find interesting, because at this time, unlike today, a lot of CIA wasn't focused on counterterrorism. There was a counterterrorism center, and there were people focused on Al-Qaeda in the Middle East. But there were still a lot of people doing China and Russia and you know Iran and everybody else. On September 12th through, let's say, the end of the month, what is CIA looking for beyond what al-Qaeda is doing in a situation like this? What I mean is, are you now looking to see if others are trying to take advantage of the situation? Is North Korea starting to move troops to the DMZ? Is Russia messing around? Are you starting to pay attention to others trying to catch us when we're kind of licking our own wounds? So I'd say two things happened, right? One was, one was a not surprising, intense focus on on al-Qaeda, right? So we moved hundreds of people from a non-terrorism job to a terrorism mm -hmm. job, right? So the amount of, and, and the amount of material that we were giving to the president every day, right, was weighted significantly towards al-Qaeda and terrorism and towards the, 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 the soon to be underway and then the underway um, US, US intervention in Afghanistan. Um, following 9-11. Mm -hmm. following so huge focus on that, right? And then uh, 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 also a focus on exactly what you said, right? Are there people who are look, looking to take advantage of our focus on something else? Um, the focus of our time, the focus of our resources, our intelligence resources, and the focus of our military, mm -hmm. right? And our covert action capabilities, right? Focused on, on, on something else. So you are watching for those things. I remember that one of the things we did for President Bush after 9-11 is because, because terrorism was squeezing out other important stories from the PDB that we would occasionally, every month or so, we would do a piece, here's what you've missed right. because of that. So we'd have a piece that might have, have 10 different paragraphs on 10 different issues that each would have warranted it's an individual PDB prior to 9-11 that didn't have the room anymore. So we did a little summary of them, right, to say, here's what you've missed on the other important issues right. going on in the world. 
Let me let me ask you. You talked. You alluded to this already. The plan to go after Al Qaeda was a CIA plan, and CIA was a lead agency going to Afghanistan. Did a lot of the early heavy lifting. Um, how much of a op tempo increase for briefing was there uh, with, with you and the president? Uh, did, did it go to several hours a day? Was there a constant conversation between you or, or did George Tenet begin to kind of be part of the daily routine? So prior to 9-11, um, I got to work. I got up at three in the morning to get to work at four for an eight o'clock briefing. After 9-11, I got up at 12.30 to get to work at 1.30 for an 8 o'clock briefing. Um, and there were two, two causes for that. One was the amount of threat material that was coming in. And we were doing we – we I don't know why we were doing this, but we were doing a threat matrix. So we were putting down on a piece of paper every threat that the intelligence community – um, was reporting on in raw traffic and assessing it, and for some reason, some for some reason we were doing that, and for some reason I'm not I'm not sure why, and for some reason the president was reading it every morning, before I ever got in the room, so I had to be prepared to answer his questions on every single one of those, and there might be 50 on any given day, and he might say, Michael, let me ask you a question about 22, or Michael, let me ask you a question about 45, right? And I'd have to be able to answer it. So I would have to go through every one of those. Uh, and then the second reason was the, 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 the war in Afghanistan. Um, and we were in the lead initially. Um, and because we were in the lead, um, the president expected um, updates every day. And um, I, I would provide sort of the tactical updates and the director would provide kind of the strategic updates. Um, I had a big battle map, those old order of battle maps, right, that would fill up a table. I had one of those that I used every day to show the president where the Northern Alliance forces were, where the Taliban forces were, where the Al-Qaeda forces were, right, and gave him a kind of a day-to-day blow-by-blow. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's what took up that time. It, this would be completely understandable if it is the case, and I probably think it is, but were there – how do I put this – the the kind of Monday morning quarterbacking on the lead up to nine eleven, the kind of the blinking red were all these indicators you knew they were real after the fact because you were able to kind of go back and put together the pieces. Were there false alarms is the wrong word. Were were you overly sensitive to things that might be indicators after nine eleven because of nine eleven? If that makes any sense. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely you are, right? So um so, th- so so there's a couple things that happen, right? Um um, after a terrorist attack. One is you're overly sensitive to reporting, to all reporting, mm-hmm. right, for obvious reasons. Um, the second is that is that there's, there's more reporting. There's just more reporting, and it happens for two reasons. One is um, a source will hear something, and they thought it not relevant before, and now they think it might be relevant, and so they tell you. And then the other are these things called poison pen letters or poison pen reporting. So if you've got a girlfriend that, that is a former girlfriend and you're mad at her and you 
reporter is a terrorist, right? There's a lot of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So the volume goes way up, and then your sensitivity, your sensitivity to it goes way up. Does that, does that include foreign partners or even people who we wouldn't even call partners before 9-11? I know Iran was one of the first phone calls that came in and said, we do what we can now. Absolutely, right. Yeah. Um, the, the, the stuff's flowing in from everywhere. Uh, let me bounce a little bit ahead just because we could – time limitations. We talk about this forever. Uh, to 2003 uh, in the lead-up to the Iraq War. Um, how soon after 9-11 did the conversations on Iraq begin? So not in, – in my, in my experience in the Oval Office, right? right. So there's different, there, there's different venues, right? There's a sit-room, you know, deputies, right. principals. In, 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 the, in the Oval Office, not, not, any, not right after 9-11. Right. Just not. Um, I remember the president asking once whether Iraq might have anything to do with this, and, and George Tennant said, no, I don't believe so, right? I just don't believe so. Um, and that was the end of that. So there was not in the Oval Office from George Tennant a, a, a focus on, okay, now is our opportunity to get Iraq. Right. What was the feeling at CIA about the diversion of, of, of agency resources away from Afghanistan in the direction of Iraq? So there was a concern. There was a concern at CIA that um, the Iraq War would divert resources, military and intelligence resources, from Afghanistan in a in a fight that we had not yet won, right, against the Taliban and Al Qaeda. So there was a concern about that. But at the same time, at the same time, we were the ones who were telling the president that Saddam Hussein had right. Chemical weapons had a biological weapons production capability and, and was restarting his nuclear weapons program, right? Yeah, let me ask you, what was your personal role in CIA's analysis of the Iraqi government? So I was, the num- I was at that point the number three on the analytic side of the agency, so I was in the chain of command. There's been a lot of conversation about pressure from the White House, about you know, pushing CIA to come back with a particular answer. I, I, I wonder, in debate that, we can debate that all we want. I think it's been done. I, I'd like to ask you a question kind of a little more wonky about your opinion on the power of pointed questions of, you know, not necessarily go find this evidence, but tasking of the nuance between are there weapons of mass destruction and where are there weapons of mass destruction on the idea of you can tell a policymaker is interested in a certain thing by they're constantly asking you questions about a certain thing. Do you, and you can take it beyond a rock and kind of talk at wax philosophic overall in a broad sense about the problems associated with, policymakers and their directives towards intelligence agencies? So it's a great question. Um, I think it's the responsibility of the director, the deputy director, um, the head of analysis at CIA to take, to take a question from a policymaker and reframe it um, into an appropriate intelligence question, right? Oftentimes they come as policy questions, um, oftentimes they, 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 they come, right, with, with a particular mindset um, um, that the policymaker has, right, which is, which is why they come across as pointed, even though they might not be designed to, to get a particular answer, but they're coming from a particular mindset. Um, so it's the responsibility of the leadership to reframe those questions into an appropriate intelligence question, right? And I felt, I felt that way when I was deputy and acting director. I would – plenty of questions mm-hmm. that I would take and reframe. I, I was a grad student during most of Iraq, and, and so as a result, I was a snarky PhD student who thought he knew more than everybody else. Um, now I know I know more than everybody else. No. Um, <laughs> and, and so I was very annoyed at CIA 
uh, for the analysis of Iraq WMD. And then I, I learned a little bit more about the nuance behind it, that uh, out of the 70-some-odd senators that voted to go to war in Iraq, only maybe six or seven had actually read the document. Um, so I wonder what you think about CIA's culpability in selling the WMD story to Congress and the public with that nuance in mind. Of Because I've, I've talked to different people from Mark Lowenthal to others about yeah. – you know, yes, we got it wrong, but no one even read the damn thing anyway, and people had their minds made up to begin with. So how much of a role does CIA have in selling this idea? So I think the CIA has a huge, huge responsibility here. Um, and, and, and it was, I think, arguably CIA's greatest failure. Um, I believe that President Bush decided to go to war, you know, not to bring democracy to Iraq, not to make it, you know, a shining example of 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 what democracy could could mean in the Middle East and all of that stuff. I believe President Bush went to war because he feared that Saddam Hussein might give weapons of mass destruction to the terrorists who he was supporting, and he was supporting. So he wasn't supporting Al Qaeda, mm -hmm. but he was supporting he was supporting other terrorists. Right. That's why. That's why I think President Bush went to war. Um, because of that huge consequence of, of that happening, right? The potential consequence to the United States of that happening. And we were the ones who said, he's got this stuff. And we really believed it. So mm -hmm. it's not a matter of selling it. I mean, we really believed it. And we believed it before President Bush ever came to office. That's what we were telling the Clinton administration. Um, so, so, so nobody had to force that, try to force that judgment on us. That's where we were. Um, so I believe, right, huge, huge analytic mistake. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in part responsible for the, the, the taking the president where he ended up. I, I, I really believe that. Um, you know, the, the, there, there, there was also, Vince, you know, this is, this is largely framed as, a, as an analytic error. Mm -hmm. This is also a huge collection failure. Um, the CIA and NSA failed to penetrate Saddam Hussein's inner circle um, to know what he had done, right, which was to get rid of this stuff, um, thinking that, that the United States would be able to see that and that sanctions would eventually go away, um, but he could keep the Iranians in the dark about actually having given the stuff up, mm -hmm. right? We failed to collect that. We failed to understand what he was doing. So there's a failure here on the collection side as well as, as, well as on the analytic side. Um, and the failure on the analytic side is extraordinarily complicated, um, and I, I've written about it, um, and it has to do with, with, with um, confidence levels in your judgment. Um, but, yeah, no, CIA is responsible here. Talk a lot about analysis, and I, I'm wondering in Iraq, Afghanistan, and now what has happened to Iraq with the rise of ISIS and other things. A traditional analysis, the way we would think of it as, you know, how good is the new Soviet tank to, you know, what, what the Chinese economy looks like. A traditional analysis shifted from understanding the world to targeting bad guys. I mean, it's especially with analysts being forward well, it deployed. Hasn't shifted, right? It hasn't right. shifted from one to the other. I think the the targeting the targeting has become a new. And, and not only targeting human beings, but targeting organizations and targeting lots of different things, right? Targeting has become a new discipline, right? But we're still doing the other kind of stuff. We'll be right back after this. 
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. How much did the CIA warn about the rise of ISIS? Was it missed or was it something that was warned against once a power vacuum was created in Iraq? Or was it even warned about before? Yeah, so I was gone. Yeah. I was gone, right? So I left in August of 2013, um, and ISIS had not, had, not, um, had not become a phenomenon yet. Um, so I don't know the answer to that specifically. But I will tell you that, that the folks who made up the, the leadership of the the, 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 the post-U.S. presence leadership of AQI and then um, the ISIS leadership were guys who the U.S. the U.S. military had in detention in Iraq who, when the U.S. left, either were let out of jail or escaped from jail. Right? They became the leadership. And we warned, we warned strongly that that was going to happen if the U.S. withdrew from Iraq and we turned all these prisoners over to the Iraqis, that these guys would get out and would become a significant threat to the United States. Um, I think, based, based on things that I've heard over the years, I think that um, we saw AQI go across the border into Syria, rename itself. We rename itself ISIS, right? You can't be al-Qaeda... In, in Iraq and Syria, right? That's not cool. So they needed to rename themselves, and they renamed themselves ISIS. Um, we saw their significant growth in Syria as Syrian Sunnis joined them, um, as they got their hands on Bashar al-Assad's um, um, weapons depots, um, and as they got battlefield training, I think we saw them growing in sophistication. I think what we missed was the fragility the significant fragility of Iraqi security forces. Yeah. So I think what we what we were surprised by, I'm guessing a little bit here, but I think what we were surprised by was how easily ISIS overran the Iraqi security forces when they came back right. into Iraq. Let me ask you about remote warfare, because I think that, that it seems somewhat weird about talk about the humanity of war, but there's always been rules about when it's okay to kill somebody, you know, both by the military and in civilian intelligence agencies. The military has a lot of time to come to terms with this. I mean, the advent of aerial warfare in the early 20th century really kind of forced them to come to grips with this. But traditionally, this wasn't something intelligence agencies had been doing until fairly recently. Um, and usually you're able to do it up close and personal with very minimum collateral damage. There wasn't a ton. You know, when Trotsky was killed with an ice axe to the head, it didn't kill the families around and blow up several buildings. And I think you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> um, Drones have clearly saved the lives of American pilots and American uh, soldiers on the battlefield, and it's allowed us to take care of people in areas where we couldn't get boots on the ground and, and do anything about it otherwise. But now that we've had kind of 15 years to look back at the drone program, 
how can we assess it? It would be assessed as a success because of that reason um, or because or something less than a success because of the how it's been used as kind of a rallying cry for not only ISIS, but other organizations in the Middle East. Um, you know, you can't see a anti-American rally in parts of the world without people holding up predator drone cutouts and talking about the the death from above from the Americans. Yeah, so I can't talk about anything that, and I understand that, that, that CIA might have done that, yes. or, or not done, but I can certainly talk about the United States of America's mm-hmm. um, use of drones in the counterterrorism campaign. And I would argue that it is it, – it, 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 it has been and probably still is extraordinarily effective um, in, in, in stopping plots, um, in stopping attacks um, that I'm pretty certain would have happened in the absence of taking these guys off the battlefield. Um, one of, the, one of the, the, the ways to see that is to look at the materials that were found in the bin Laden compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. Um, and those materials um, show a, a intense focus um, and obsession even and I, I don't think obsession is too strong a word on the part of bin Laden and al-Qaeda in, in um, the threat that drones pose to them um, and what that meant for their ability. You know, they had to – because of those things, they had to focus on their security much more than, than they would have to have done otherwise. Um, you know, they couldn't go out at certain hours. They, they were always wondering how did the United States of America do this. Um, it really restricted – their movement and their operations in a way that affected their ability to operate and plot and plan. Um, and it also removed very senior people from the battlefield. And yeah, is there a chance that a person might get replaced by somebody better? Sure. Um, but everybody has a learning curve. Um, and um, I think that, that taking guys off the battlefield in, in rapid succession absolutely degraded them and their capabilities. Mm-hmm. And I think the last thing I'd say is I don't believe that these weapons are anything special in warfare. Um, I don't see how a drone is any different than a sniper a mile across the battlefield killing an enemy soldier who is not not at that moment threatening that person, right? right? Um, But is a larger threat. Right in the bigger scheme of things, I don't see how it's any different than a cruise missile. Somebody on an Aegis ship pushing a button mm-hmm. and a cruise missile fires 300 miles and lands somewhere pinpoint accuracy. I don't see how it's any different than precision-guided munitions from a B-2. Right. Um, except to say that it's much more accurate um, than, than a cruise missile or precision-guided munitions. Um, and the collateral is much, much less. Um, you know, there, 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 there are many, many stories out there about collateral. The true story out there is that was there collateral? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, was it much less than it would have been with um, bombs dropped from a B two or a fighter, uh, a fighter jet, or or, or cruise missiles? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think this is a new type of warfare. Um, I think it's an advance in, 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 in a current type of warfare, and, and I, I think it's been extraordinarily successful, and I think it's something the United States of America is going to have to do for a long time. 
So I, I don't want to relitigate all the arguments for and against the enhanced interrogation yeah. program. I, I don't think we can come to any consensus, no matter who I talk to, about the torture versus not. And I know that George Tennant just refuses even to yeah. use that word. So do I. So, so I, I don't think – let's not so do, do that. But I want to ask you about effectiveness. Um, <laughs> you thought you were going to get at it. I'm talking about it at all. Um, I, you weren't all that happy. You've been on record about not being particularly happy with the Senate. Uh, they, they call it the Senate torture report uh, in their conclusions. Um, let's not relitigate that either. Let sure. me ask you about traditional methods because one of the, the most compelling arguments to me about uh, not using enhanced interrogation is the idea that perhaps traditional methodology, whether it's the Army Field Manual, what the FBI was doing, if given time, would have worked as effectively, perhaps, as enhanced interrogation. And it's counterfactual, of course, because they weren't given the chance to. Uh, what I'm not sure I've heard a super convincing argument against that. I'm not saying I believe it, but in the world of arguments, I'm not sure I've heard a convincing argument against that. Is, is there one that you could provide? So I think there's, 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 a, there's a whole bunch of stuff, right? One is... One is that um, you know we had I don't know what 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 the total number was, but something over a hundred detainees in CIA's detention um, during the entire period of the program, mm-hmm. and of those, only about thirty people were subjected to enhanced interrogation techniques. Of those, and and that meant that meant the the other seventy or eighty folks. We're, we're talking without mm-hmm. enhanced interrogation techniques, which means that you gave them an opportunity to talk under traditional methods before you turn to enhanced interrogation techniques. So those had already been tried and failed. Mm-hmm. So that's argument one, mm-hmm. right? Argument two, and, 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 and by the way, of those 30 people who were subjected to enhanced interrogation techniques, very few were subjected to the worst. Right? Well, and I think that's a, a misconception that a lot of people have. If you look at the list... Of and there's maybe two, I think that are can have a conversation about. Obviously, waterboarding, right. and then some of the stress position stuff. I think the other ones, walling and slapping, those don't necessarily. If, though, if yeah. those are torture, then they happen on the practice football fields of right. America every day, and those coaches should be in jail. Right, right? And, I, and really, I think torture. the two things that come down to is the, the waterboarding and then the stress position. Right. And, and you could there. argue sleep deprivation. Yeah. You right. could argue sleep deprivation. Right. Um, um, so so. Um, I think the other point to remember, which means you went through, right? You went through a sequence because mm-hmm. because only a few suffered the worst. You went through a sequence, right, of the easier to the harder, right? And 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 the easier got people to talk, so you didn't have to go to the harder, mm-hmm. right? So so that 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 there wasn't a jump right away to the waterboard, right? So the second issue is the context of the times, right? What's the context of the times? Number one, America had just suffered its worst attack. In history, we had number two. We had credible intelligence reporting that um, that turned out to be true that Al Qaeda was trying follow-on attacks of of, of similar scope and size. Mm-hmm. Um, we had credible intelligence reporting that Al Qaeda that turned out to be true that Al Qaeda was trying to acquire a nuclear weapon. We had credible intelligence reporting. Um, that turned out not to be true, that they might have acquired a nuclear weapon and were trying to sneak it into the United States. So that's the second piece of context. The third piece of context is that that we and the Pakistanis were were arresting, capturing um, these senior al-Qaeda guys in Pakistan, and they were not, 
right? Traditional interrogation techniques were not getting them to talk. Um, I know there's a dispute here between the FBI and CIA mm-hmm. on this question, but I, I've, I've heard it from many of my guys um, that they were not, and I believe them. Um, I've seen only one FBI person push back on that. Um, so I'll go with numbers here. That, that traditional interrogation techniques were not working um, and that it was believed that these people had the information about those attacks, right? So there was, there was, there was both a, a pressure, right, to, to save lives and a time pressure associated with all of that. Um, so you, you put all that together and, and where I come out at the end of the day on, on this, Vince, is I don't think – I don't think anybody, and I mean anybody – can with certainty, with any degree of certainty, tell you or tell me what they know they would do if they were put into the position that George Tennant and George Bush and Condi Rice were right. put into at that moment, right? I, I just don't think, whether it's Dianne Feinstein or wh- whether, whether it's Barack Obama, I don't think they can tell you, I know what I would have done. Right. My confusion really centers on the fact that I think it was almost a year after 9-11, that the program itself was stood up. That, um, and, and so I've always, at least the first person was waterboarded almost a year after 9-11. So my, my problem or my question, I not a problem, I don't know the answer to it. My question is, we talk about immediacy and a follow-on attack. I know a year is not that long, but it seems like the argument that we thought there was going to be a 9-12 or 9-13, well, unless you're talking about 2002, right. Then it seems problematic to me. So, so um, the program did exist mm. prior, right? Um, it just wasn't formalized. Um, there was actually there was actually a, a a kind of early program that really centered in Afghanistan. Um, people being captured on the battlefield there. Um, that's where the detention. That's where the detention program started, right. um, in large part because. Because the military wouldn't take the U.S. military wouldn't take these guys, and their home countries didn't want them, um, and the Afghan government there was no Afghan government, and so this kind of people turned to CIA and said, "You be the jailer here, mm-hmm. right?" Um, and there was some use of non-traditional techniques there, but the program, and so that that started right, um, and 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 that transitioned into this much more formal program, which did begin about a year after. The second the second factor. That led to that is the s- most senior guys being captured weren't until mid right. mid um, 2002, right? So the people that you grabbed, who you thought had this information about these follow-on attacks and plots, right, um, um, weren't captured until mid 2002. Um, so that's the second factor that led well, to yeah, the I mean, time gap. Exactly, KSM being the one most it was waterboarded the most times and. And, you know, the guy who planned 9-11 wasn't captured until later on. Um, The question that we're going to ask with the new museum, there's a little preview for you guys out there, uh, when we have an interrogation section, is it's a question that I think uh, all Americans need to deal with one way or another, is the idea of torture or not, we can debate that all we want, effectiveness or not, we can actually debate that all we want. The question is about should a free and moral society actually be doing this? Great question. So um, and, and, and my disappointment and, – and, and I don't want to relitigate this. My disappointment with the, the, the Senate Intelligence Committee study is not only about the quality of its judgments um, 
you know, from an analyst point of view and, wh- and whether they got them right or wrong, but it was that they didn't answer the fundamental questions. So four, four critical questions that have to be answered, right? One is legality, one is necessity, one is effectiveness, and then we get to the fourth, which is the one you're talking about, which is morality, right? Something can be legal, it can be necessary, and it can be effective, and it can still be wrong, right? right? Um, so how do you deal with that question? And um, the, way, the way I think about it is the way John McLaughlin puts it, um, former deputy director of CIA, which is there are two sides to this coin. One side of the coin is how can a country like the United States of America, um, which, which, which stands for human rights, um, the, the dignity of the individual, democracy, freedom, all of those things, how can the United States of America do something like waterboarding? Mm-hmm. The other side of that, and, and, and that's a tough question to answer, right? The other side of that morality coin is, is if you really believe that you need to do this to get information to stop an attack that's going to kill Americans, how can you not do it? Right. Right? And that's where the really difficult question comes, right? And, and my disappointment, my disappointment with, with the, the, the Senate Intelligence Committee report is that they only dealt with one of those. They only dealt with necessity. They didn't deal with any others, mm-hmm. right? And it's really easy. It's really easy to be opposed to these things if you can argue they're not necessary or if you can argue they're not effective. But if they are necessary and they are effective and they are legal, then the moral question is really, really hard. Right. And that's the really tough question that we've never had a conversation about. Well, and that's the question that you know every single person, regardless of – you know, how much they know or how little they know can kind of come to the table and, and they don't need to have all the classified briefings. They can kind of, what do they truly believe as, as an American? Um, and it's one that we, we hope we can actually get people to start to think about as we move forward because uh, it gets really dirty other than that. I mean, the, the, question, the, the debates back and forth about the things you mentioned with effectiveness and necessity and all these other things, you can just kind of debate yourself in circles there. But all of us can have that understanding from who we are about the morality of the issue. Let's talk about something a little more fun, I guess, uh, the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Um, how frustrating was it for both CIA and President Bush when bin Laden just vanished after Tora Bora? It had to have been immensely frustrating for both your agency and for the president. So I said that I briefed President Bush from January 4th, 2001 to January 4th, 2002, and it was on January 4th, 2002 that I had to tell him that bin Laden had escaped from Tora Bora, and I never saw him matter um, than he was at that moment. I I never saw him get angry prior to that moment. Um, So it was, you know, it was frustrating to us, and it was frustrating to him um, that he escaped. And it was, you know, we, we knew that we would eventually get him. And we knew that. Um, we were following every lead as far as it went, right? Um, the lead that eventually got him, it was a lead that actually started in 2002. So we followed these leads mm-hmm. until they ran dry. And there were literally hundreds of leads. So we knew we would eventually find him. I think what was frustrating was there was an expectation on the part of folks that finding him was easier than it was. Mm-hmm. Right. People would ask all the time, you know, why haven't you found bin Laden? Why haven't you found bin Laden? Why haven't you found bin Laden? 
Um, being an analyst, I would, I, would, I would answer it analytically, right? I would say, well, did you know that the Unabomber was at large for 17 years before the FBI found him? And did you know that the Atlantic Olympic, the bomber at the Atlanta mm-hmm. Olympics was at large for, I don't know, six, six or eight years um, before the FBI could find him? And, and it's the FBI's own territory, right? right? Bin Laden's hiding somewhere. It's not mm-hmm. our territory, right? So I tried to put it in that context. Um, the, the former director of our counterterrorism center um, would answer the question, you know, why haven't you found bin, bin Laden by saying, because he is hiding, because yeah. he is hiding, right? Um, and so that, that was the frustrating question, right? Yeah. It, that question was constant. Why haven't you found him? Why haven't you found and him? And pundits love to, and they, right or wrong, they love to talk about how the Iraq war kind of took resources away from the hunt for bin Laden and you would have found him much earlier. If it so I don't believe that. that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Um, um, I don't think we ever took our focus off of it at all. Yeah. One thing I think our listeners may find very interesting because we don't get a chance to talk about this a lot is the degree of confidence question. It was the deliberations for the mission itself. Um, advisors to the president, to president Obama actually had different levels of confidence about whether that was bin Laden at that compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And, and, and no one gave a very high degree of confidence. I mean, high maybe for CIA, but for the layperson, you know, you, yeah, he's there. There wasn't very, there weren't a lot of people, other, regardless of what Zero Dark Thirty tried well, to Well, actually, actually um, um, there were some high f- folks on the high side. Um, so so the, key, the key lesson learned from um, our failure in Iraq WMD is that analysts have to have a well-thought-out judgment about what you're looking at and have to have a well-thought-out level of confidence in that judgment. Um, And that usually comes in the form of words like low confidence, medium confidence, and high confidence. Mm -hmm. But in the case of bin Laden being at Abbottabad, somehow those levels of confidence, low, medium, high, got translated into probabilities. What's the probability Mm -hmm. that he's there? And those are two different things, but for some reason that's, that's, that's what happened. And people were largely all over the map on the probabilities. So the analyst, the, the, the key analyst herself, Maya in, in Zero Dark mm-hmm. Thirty, right? The key analyst herself was at 95%. I think in the movie she was at 100%. Yeah. But, but in real life she was at 95%. Her most senior analytic manager in the counterterrorism center was at 80%. I was at 60 Some other people were at 50 mm-hmm. So people were all over the map. And we had a meeting with the president in the sit room um, where the president turned to Leon Panetta and said, Leon, why, why is there such a divergence here? And Leon turned to me. I was sitting against the wall. Leon turned to me and said, um, Michael, can you answer the president's mm-hmm. question? Um, and I said, Mr. President, um, and I had to gather my thoughts pretty quickly here. It's a tough question. Um, I said, Mr. President, I want to assure you that it's not because people are looking at different sets of information. Everybody's looking at exactly the same data, right? Nobody's got more data than somebody else. So rest assured of that. I said, I think what's going on here is that people are washing these these confidence levels, these probabilities through their own personal experiences. So for for the two analysts in the room, um, they're washing it through their post-9-11. They weren't there pre-9-11. They're post-9-11 experience 
um, of knowing nothing but success after success after success in stopping plots, Mm -hmm. stopping attacks, taking bad guys off the battlefield, right? I'm washing it through my personal experience with the Rock WMD, um, and that's why I'm at 60, right? So I think people are washing it through their own personal experiences. Then I said something that, that, that kind of stunned the room. I said, Mr. President, in fact, you should know that the case that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction is stronger, was stronger than the case that bin Laden is, is at a bottom body. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. Um, and that's, that's, that's an example of, you know, kind of the proper use of confidence levels. It's an example of speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. It's an example of, of um, saying things that your own boss might not have liked. Um, um, but it's, it's an example of being an intelligence officer. And I think people dismiss the decision that President Obama had to make by not really understanding the implications, if we're wrong, about essentially invading a sovereign power. I, I, I try to tell people, you know, I, I, especially I'm from Miami, and so people are like, well, imagine if a bunch of helicopters from Cuba flew into downtown Miami and they went and shot up a building in downtown Miami where one of their guy one of their guys was sitting. I mean, we would probably go to war with Cuba over that. And I understand we're not friendly necessarily as much as we are with the Pakistanis, but this was an act of war. And actually there was some shenanigans, I'm calling it that, of the Navy SEALs not really being Navy SEALs when they went into Pakistan and being seconded to seconded to CIA because of that exact reason. All right. Right. I mean, the idea was, right, if, if the, reason, the reason this was a covert action and not a military um, 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 action, um, chain of command went from the president to Leon Panetta to, uh, to Bill McRaven, not through mm-hmm. the secretary of defense, um, was because had we gone in and he wasn't there and had we got out with nobody detecting us, we would have not said anything. Right. Right. It was quiet. Um, yeah, it was a tough – it was it – was, I don't think it was a tough decision – to do something, to, to take some sort of action. I think it was a tough decision what action to take. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could have you could have sent a, a, a clandestine team in, right, um, with a much smaller footprint than than what we did. You could have done that on the ground, um, snuck in, snuck out, right. Um, you could have you could have dropped you could have dropped bombs from a B two, and that would have been seen as an act of war, but it would have been safer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a really tough decision to send to send in those seals um, on helicopters um, with a with a not insignificant chance that they would get caught by the Pakistani military. Mm-hmm. I talk about leadership analysis a little bit because I think in that area of the world also. I ask you a little bit about Iran because I know I know you studied this. Um, I'm wondering about the dichotomy between what Rouhani says and what Khamenei says. I think Americans don't quite understand that there's no such thing as an official proclamation from Iran because there's two different guys selling us two different things. Um, and, and to me, this is kind of center. I know I've dramatically shifted just because of time. Um, that's an important concept to me because of things like the Iran deal uh, and things like threats to Israel, uh, the rest of the Middle East, the kind of um, Iran slipping into the vacuum that we've but we, knocking out Saddam Hussein has created. Um, how do we deal with that dichotomy between a, a Rouhani who is somewhat amenable 
to kind of Western conversation. And then Ayatollah Khomeini, who is very much a disciple of Ayatollah Khomeini, who called us the great Satan and everything from there. So I think this is really important. Um, There is a struggle going on in Iran for the future direction of that country. Um, and on the one side um, are the, quote, hardliners, unquote, um, largely made up of the, the clerics, the RRGC, the RRGC Quds Force. Um, the Supreme Leader is at the, is at the, 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 the lead of that group. Um, and that, that, that view, right, is that Iran should be a revolutionary state. That Iran, in other words, Iran should spread this particular um, kind of government they have, right? This this uh, this clerical-led, overseen government. Right? There's a whole other side of Iranian society that believes that Iran should not be a revolutionary state; it should be a normal nation. Um, and by being a normal nation, there's a lot of things that Iran is doing today that it wouldn't do. Um, and that group is led by is led by a couple guys uh, who, who were once led by a couple guys who ran for president in 2009 and are now in jail. But but that 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 really that leadership has fallen on the shoulders of the current president Rouhani. Mm-hmm. Um, and this 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 struggle inside of Iran for what kind of nation it's going to be played out during the recent presidential election, and it played out on the debate stage. Between Rouhani and his 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 hardline opponent, mm-hmm. each accusing each other, right, of, of of causing great harm to 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 Iran. So, how that how that struggle plays out is going to be critically important to the future of Iran, the future of the region, um, to the United States. It's critically important. So the the key policy question that flows from this is. How does the United States of America push back on all of the bad things that Iran does in the region, from supporting terrorists to supporting insurgents to wanting Israel to wipe Israel off the face of the planet to all of those bad things it does in the region? How do we push back against that without strengthening the hardliners and weakening Mm -hmm. the centrists or what some people call the moderates? I don't call them moderates. I call them centrists. Um, How do we – how do we – how do we – make all that work and that's that's the hard question and i think the answer has to do with that we can't do we can't take on the iranians alone we really need to do it as a coalition of nations because if we do it alone then we become then it's the great satan doing right. it right but if we do it with, with a coalition of nations it's much harder for the hardliners to make that argument so um it's a really really important question the outcome of that debate is not determined. It could go either way. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'd say is that, um, and this is really important for, I think, Sunni Arab nations to understand, that that even an Iran that is a normal nation is not misbehaving in the region of the ways we just talked. Even a, an, an Iran that's a normal nation is going to have considerable influence in the region because of its size, right. because of its culture, because of its economy. It's going to have a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of influence. So at the end of the day, what the Iranians need to accept is they 
can't provide support to terrorists and insurgents. They have to accept the existence of the state of Israel. And what the Sunni Arab nations need to do and, and Israel needs to do is accept the fact that, that Iran as a normal nation is going to have considerable influence. They both have yeah. something to accept. Yeah. We treat this a little bit like the lightning round for despots and dictators. Let me ask you about North Korea. Yeah. Um, Within the intelligence community, there are analysts who study leadership, and they're certainly true for other countries as well. And this has to be incredibly daunting with someone like Kim Jong-un and his father and grandfather before him. And the question tends to come up from time to time about Kim Jong-un being a rational actor. And, you know, whether we want to talk about rational actor theory or not, the idea is, that he, is he someone that we can deal with the same way we would deal with other countries around um, is, can we use history as a guide in this case of, of his father and his grandfather about how to deal with them, of what not to do and what to do when dealing with Kim Jong-un? Because the nuclear threat, I, I, I blanch a little bit when the current administration says we're not going to allow them to become a nuclear power. And I'm like, whoa, you're about 20 years too late, guys. Um, don't we need to have a rational conversation about diplomacy and dealing with them as already a nuclear threat? So I'd say a couple things. One is um, I think he's rational. What does that mean? It means I don't think he's mentally ill. Um, ha having said that, I'd also say that he's rational in his own world, in his own mindset, right? And there's some things in his mindset that aren't true. So, for example, he believes that the United States of America wants North Korea to go away wants his regime to go away, wants him to go away, and wants North Korea to go away, and wants Korea reunited on South Korea's terms. We don't. We don't care. Well, as, as an some of the economics background, that would be a nightmare right. for South Korea and the United States. We don't, we don't care what he does domestically, right? We only care how he's threatening us in the region, right? He's wrong about that, but he fundamentally believes it, and it's one of the key drivers mm -hmm. behind his desire to have nuclear weapons, right, to deter us from being able to, to, to defeat him, right? So, so he's rational within his mindset, right? Um, I, I believe strongly that he is not, not going to stop until he is seen as a nuclear weapon state, right, with the capability to put a U.S. city at risk of nuclear attack. At that point, he will say, I'm ready to talk. I am now a nuclear weapon state. I'm ready to have a sit down and have a conversation with you. You don't think he needs a foreign boogeyman? I mean, this is kind of right out of the Mao playbook of the Cultural Revolution. So I do. I yeah. absolutely do. So I do think that a diplomatic solution of any kind is going to be really, really tough. Mm -hmm. um, because I believe that he, you know, he, 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 tells, he tells his people that we are a great threat to him. Um, he tells his people that he has figured out the way to deal with that threat, which is the acquisition of nuclear weapons and the ability to deliver them. And he's told them that this will be his legacy. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you can't turn on a dime, right, and say, well, I really – you know, there's, there's now a deal with the United States, right? Well, he tells them that their sacrifice exactly. is because of this Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I, I think he does need the United States as an enemy. Um, I think he sees these weapons as critically important to his future and his country's future so that getting him to stop here is going to be extraordinarily hard. I believe at the end of the day that we're going to have to, um, whether we say it or not publicly, we're going to have to accept that he's a nuclear weapon state and we're going to have to contain and deter him. Are, are we giving China too much credit for their ability to reign in North Korea? 
That's a great question because when you hear people talk about China and North Korea, um, there's an assumption in the way they talk about it. And the assumption is if China would only use its its economic relationship to put the squeeze on North Korea, um, Kim Jong-un would, would, would listen and would back away from where he is, right? That assumption is there in the way people talk about it. I have real doubts about that. Um, and I think the Chinese have real doubts about that. Um, I think that Kim Jong-un, if, even if China put its hands around his throat economically and squeezed, I believe Kim Jong-un is so close to getting to where he wants to be that he will put up with the economic deprivation and he will figuratively and literally make his people eat grass in order to get there. It seems like it's in China's best interest to have us kind of chasing our tails around a little bit. So I actually think this is an interesting question. I actually think that 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 um, that it is in China's interest, as it is in ours, for North Korea not to be a nuclear weapon state. Mm-hmm. Because if China thought about it for for more than ten seconds, they would know that if North Korea becomes a nuclear weapon state, um, good chance South Korea. And there's a good chance Japan will actually think about it seriously. At least remilitarize, yeah, right? become a real army, yeah. And we and the Japanese and the South Koreans are going to have to build our, up, up our missile defense in the region, which the Chinese are going to see as a threat. Mm-hmm. So it is not in China's interest for North Korea to become a nuclear weapon state. So, so you know, I, I think the, 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 the real interesting diplomatic conversation should be with, with China about is there anything that the two of us can do together to stop this? Let me, let me move on to Russia, um, because you said two things that sounded on face to be somewhat contradictory, and, and I want to ask you about them, because you talked about the Russian interference in the 2016 election as, quote, the political equivalent of 9-11. You later said there's no fire. Yeah, there's yeah. a smoke, fire, oh, completely discuss, different collusion. Issue. I know they're different issues. Great, wanna, great question. Yeah. Great question. Um, so there, there, are two, there are two separable issues here. One is, what did the Russians do? And what are they still doing to interfere in our democracy, right? Um, that, I think, is, is a judgment that you can take to the bank, high confidence. That's what the intelligence community said, that Russia, that Russia interfered in our de- democracy, interfered in our election, right? Um, there's no question about that. And, by the way, they still are mm-hmm. aggressively interfering in our democracy to this very day. Um, the second issue is... Did, did the Trump campaign conspire with the Russians in the Russians' interference in that election? Mm-hmm. It's a completely right. separate question, right? And it's there that there is a heck of a lot of smoke. There's a heck of a lot of things that need to be investigated and need to be run down. But to this very day, I have not seen anything that – I have not seen, 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 seen any evidence that I believe is credible that would stand up in a court of law that would take you to the Trump campaign did indeed conspire with the Russians in their interference in our election, right? And that's why I say there's no fire, mm-hmm. and I still don't see it. There's plenty of stuff to investigate. That's the smoke, but, there's, but I haven't seen any fire. Let me ask you about Russia writ large. Uh, is it safe to say that Russia – should not be dismissed as a potential existential threat to the United States. I mean, I think there, there are people, uh, whether on the right or the left, and usually it's the far of both cases, that like to, why can't we be friends? Why aren't we? They, 
the incompatibility, it seems, yeah. of the Putin way of government with the way we want to do things and who we want to be here in the United States uh, doesn't seem to allow for a close, tight relationship like we thought we were going to get in 92 and 93 when Yeltsin was in power. Yeah, so that's a great question, too. Um, so it's interesting, right? Um, an existential threat is a threat that 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 um, to your very existence mm-hmm. as a nation, right? To the very existence of the United States of America. There were only three that I can think of. A nuclear war with Russia. Um, so, yeah, we got to pay attention to them. Um, a a man-made or naturally occurring biological agent that kills 70% of our population and climate change. Climate change is really, 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 really slow, right, compared to the first one Mm -hmm. and the second one. But those are the only three existential threats I can think of. But Russia is the only country, right? It's on that list, right? Um, The second second point is um, Russia is extraordinarily aggressive at using its intelligence services and its foreign policy and its special forces to undercut the United States wherever it can in the world. So they are an adversary in that sense, right? The Russians are now giving support to the Taliban. Why? There is no strategic interest there besides making our life difficult in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. making it difficult for us to succeed in Afghanistan. And they do that everywhere in the world. So they are our adversary. So when people say, wouldn't it be great if we could get along with them? I'd say, absolutely, yeah, it would be great. But in order to get along with them, they have to stop much, much of their behavior in the world because it's, it, 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 it undermines our interests. So would I like to be able to partner with them on, on international issues? You bet I would. But they got a whole bunch of stuff they got to stop before we can do that. This may be an unanswerable question, but how much of their foreign policy is legitimate Russian interests? And I don't mean good ones. I mean legit. They have a legitimate interest in Ukraine, right? Because the expansion yeah. of NATO scares the hell out of them. But obviously, there's no strategic interest in helping the Taliban out. So how much is it what they need to do to be a strategic power? And how much is it a kind of a zero-sum game with the United States where if we hurt, they are benefited? Yeah, so I think there's a really interesting argument to be made that Vladimir Putin – I think what, 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 what Putin does is in Putin's interest, mm. not Russia's interest. So I even think that – that the whole Ukraine issue actually didn't strengthen Russia, it undermined it. Um, the, the way to think about that is, is um, there is only one hope, one long-term hope for the Russian economy, and that is to integrate it into the economy of Western Europe. Right? And because of what Putin did in Ukraine, because of what he did in Crimea, there is no way that's going to happen for at least the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Right? So in, in doing what he did in Ukraine, he's actually weakened the Russian state, not strengthened it, right? Um, so actually, Vladimir Putin um, is not a great Russian leader. He's, he's, he, is, he, is, he is actually speeding the, 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 the deterioration of, of Russian strength and power. Let me wrap this up by asking about transparency. Yeah. Um, and this can, you can answer this question however you want to. I'll give you kind of a multi-spectral look at what I'm asking about, really looking at the balance between transparency and necessary government secrecy. Because I think the debate has shifted in the last couple of years from the Snowden revelations, even now we know more about Russia than we perhaps did at the time, to things like WikiLeaks and Chelsea Manning uh, and others. There are clearly out there a lot of people who still think that we're not transparent enough. Have you started to see kind of the cultural p- pendulum 
in the whole trans too transparent, not transparent enough, starting to shift with the Russian elections uh, shenanigans in the fact that Edward Snowden is there and they're clearly uh, directly affiliated with WikiLeaks and some of the organizations or people that were considered kind of the the benchmark of transparency now are kind of being taken down a notch or two because of what happened in the last year or so. So I think that the government should be more transparent on these things. I think there's room for more transparency. You and I have just spent an hour talking about some very interesting things, and I've been quite open, right? Um, I believe that that by by pushing the fence line out in terms of what government officials talk about with regard to intelligence and, and quite frankly, military matters, um, that you can better inform the public, you can get more buy-in for, for, for what the government's doing, um, and you can actually do a better job of protecting the secrets you need to protect if, if you push that fence line out um, a bit. And I really believe that. Um, um, I believe, for example, on, on, again, in terms of U.S. government operation of drones, I believe there's more room for the U.S. government to talk about why it does that, mm-hmm. um, where it's doing it, um, when it's successful, um, and when we're not, what went wrong, what we're going to do to fix it, right? I believe there's more transparency there, um, for example. Um, I believe that that's very important for, particularly on the intelligence side, for a secret intelligence organization operating in a democracy, right? How, how do American people know, right, that their intelligence service is, is, is acting within the law, is, is, is using taxpayer money the right way, right? Every other government organization is open. The intelligence community is not. It n- needs to try to be as transparent as it can possibly be. Is it, is it frustrating to you that, from your perspectives, I've read about what you've, you thought about Edward Snowden, that there are people out there yeah. that, that hold him up as yeah. You know, yeah. So a hero. what you can't, what you simply can't have, right? You can believe what I said, right? Which is that there's room for more transparency. But what you simply can't have is people taking matters into their own hands and saying, "Okay, I think this needs to be public," right? Whether that be whether that be Edward Snowden or whether that be Chelsea Manning. Um, you can't have that because where does it end, right? Mm-hmm. You get every single person then who works in the government with access to classified information making decisions about what should be public or not, right? That is a presidential decision. Is it a congressional decision, right? Um, there's 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 ways for whistleblowers to get their views to the right people. Um, you simply cannot it, – it will not work to live in a society where people with access to secrets get to decide on their own what to release and what not to release. There's not a great way for do – you, do you advocate a strengthening of the whistleblower protections? Sure, absolutely. It seems like that's – Absolutely. You know, look at a case like Thomas Drake who you may even know about. Just the idea of whistleblow as far as you can and no one takes you seriously. Uh, it, it seems like – I mean – Snowden never tried, and you can depend use his argument one way or the other. I could care less about it. But if someone like Edward Snowden had walked through legitimate whistleblower levels and had the protections that were afforded that, that don't really exist in reality now, but are mainly on paper, that do you see that as a way to protect these secrets moving yes, forward? Yes, I do. Absolutely, I do. No. And if they need to be strengthened, they need to be strengthened, right? No. Um, and I think the intelligence community was whistleblower stops with the two intelligence committees, right? Maybe it needs to go to the leadership of Congress, right? Um, so maybe they need to be strengthened in that way. But, um, 
um, you, you, as I said earlier, you, you can't allow people to make their own decisions here. You just can't. Let me ask you about your podcast. Yeah, yeah because um, you know, after you listen to this, you should go over and, and, and check out your podcast with the Cipher Brief, I believe. is. So it's co-produced by yeah. the Cipher Brief, um, which is an online national security uh, um, uh, media um, forum, um, and CBS News. So it's, it's co-produced by both. Um, it's called Intelligence Matters. Um, so the cipher brief part is the real news, and the CBS is the fake news part <laughs> of the. Yeah, okay. Um, they're both outstanding yes. organizations. Um, uh, it's called Intelligence Matters, and I have two goals um, in doing it. One is to get young people uh, excited about a career in national security and intelligence, and to give them some ideas on on um, how to get from college to a to a national security job. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the different career paths uh, to think about? What are the, the forks in the road, and, and 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 how did other people navigate them? And then, secondly, um, to to help inform people about these very complicated national security issues that you and I have just spent a lot of time talking about. And, and th- what's been released? Who have you talked to? That oh gosh, we've done probably a dozen now. Um, the first one was Leon Panetta. Um, the most recent, um, and 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 that was on. Um, Secretary Panetta's, um, Director Panetta's um, career in public service mm-hmm. and and uh, and all the different things he experienced. Um, the most recent, uh, the most recent was Phil Gordon, um, who's an expert on the Middle East, mm-hmm. and we just spent the entire hour talking about what's going on in the Middle East and why it's important to Americans. Um, the one prior to that was a very interesting one. That was with Mark Kelton, who was the head of counterintelligence. Um, at CIA, and that's a really fascinating one because mm-hmm. he talks about what it's like to recruit another human being, and then what it's like to try to protect American secrets from from foreign spies. We definitely checked that out. Uh, also, check out the Great War of Our Time, uh, Mike Morell's book, "The CIA's Fight Against Terrorism from Al Qaeda to ISIS." Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today. We truly appreciate your time on Spycast, Vince. Thank you for the invitation, and it's been a great conversation. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.